Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Conversational. Today, I'm very excited to be in the studio with Ruth Zuckerman. She, as many of you may know, is one of the co-founders of SoulCycle and Flywheel, both successful companies that innovated the studio cycling movement. I'm a big spinner, so again, I, I, I give you lots of credit for helping put me on the path to a stronger heart. Um, she also by, pioneered uh, the industry by creating the studio with a paper class structure and offering more dedicated genre of group fitness, emphasizing customer service and quality experiences. Her mission is to connect people to each other as well as to their own inner strength and empower them to carry the positive, powerful attitude they have on the bike on into their lives and their careers, which if anybody, and I have spun at Till Cycle as well, as you know, we have a mutual friend and I spin it place called Joyride. There's a shout out for Rhodey. Mm-hmm. Um, it is as much about the fitness as it is about the, the community and the people and just sort of the inspirational stories. And it's it's sort of those salutations you give to yourself. But for those of us who just never do meditation, it's as close to meditation as I get. So I, I love that. Um, Ruth also speaks around the country. She inspires people to get unstuck and find new paths and new passions for a successful second, third, or even fourth act in their careers. Her memoir, Riding High, How I Kissed Soul Cycle Goodbye, co-founded Flywheel and built The Life I Always Wanted, was published in October of 2018. So I encourage everybody to check that out. Fascinating read. So jumping right in, um, I, I, so before we get to spinning and cycling and I'm you know, I really want to probe into the second, third, fourth, because I think you're probably embarking on some number in there. Tell me, where where are you from? I am from Long Island. I'm very careful not to say Long Island. Long Island? Long <laughs> I Island. I am from Long Island. I was born there and uh, grew up there. Went to college, actually, in Massachusetts, and then moved right to New York City, and I've lived in the city for about 35 years. Wow. Were you, so were your, what, were, what did your parents do? My father was a physician, oh. and my mother was a psychotherapist. Fascinating. Yes. So, okay, as people know, I'm, I, I must have some sort of inner need to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist of sorts, but clearly now, like, things are coming into focus for me. You've got the whole soul cycle flywheel thing the physician of your father in you with health and wellness, and then your mother, you know, with the psychotherapy of, you know, trying to create that exactly. co- connection. That mm-hmm. is, are they, were they super, I mean, look, who wouldn't be proud of you, but were they sort of, did they sort of feel like each one of them was trying to take credit for your success because of their influence? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, sadly, my father passed away oh. over 25 years ago, oh, no. so he didn't get to see oh, any sorry. of it. No, no, that's okay. Um, my mom, Yes, she saw me through Soul Cycle and the beginning of Flywheel. She's no longer here either, um, as we might get to at some point. Yeah. She, she was a tough cookie. So yeah. uh, as as far as being proud of me, I'm sure she was, um, but she had her own agenda, well, if you will. They will share. I mean, this is... Yeah, um, she was quite a narcissist. Oh. And so sometimes when you're dealing with a narcissist, it actually, even if she's your mother it becomes competitive, which one would never think a parent would do with a child, but that's what would happen. Were you an only child? No, I have twin brothers who are older. Interesting. I was the youngest, and I was obviously the only daughter, and I really was programmed from birth to be the perfect princess, pleaser of the family, and it takes a toll. 
after a while. And, you know, with her, it, mm-hmm. it definitely did. Was she was she a professional? Was she in psych, psychiatry, psychology? She was a therapist and she had a All private practice. Her, her whole, so yes. for your whole childhood. Very part-time. So oh, okay. she was definitely there for, for the kids. Um, but... You know, and as we got older, she increased her practice. Well, but that was just thinking, I'm sure she, I mean, I'm sure she was, you look very healthy and well put together. So I'm sure that she was, but um, I guess my question was, was her, did she bring some of that work home? With her sometimes, I mean, just sort of, of how the cycle. She yes, how she interacted. interacted. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, she was my go-to, actually, you know, whenever I had an issue, especially as I was getting older and I wanted to talk about a boyfriend or I wanted to right. just talk about why I was feeling depressed. Um, she was definitely my go-to, but it was a little too much. Mm. I mean, I relied on her too much and she fed into that. So it caused me to really... Um, take a long time in terms of learning how to be independent. Hmm. What did, so when you you left and went to college, mm-hmm. you said, did you say you went to Ma- in Massachusetts? Ma- yes, I went to Mount Holyoke. So was that was that moment of, of leaving to go, again, your first sort of foray into independence, as you said, was that I challenging? Would, I would say it was challenging on one side of it, but on the other side of it, it was also just really freeing for mm-hmm. me to actually be on my own mm-hmm. and realize that I can make decisions on my own. So what did you what did you end up studying then? I was a dance major. No kidding. And a philosophy minor, to wow. believe it or not. And um, So you're still combining the two things, I, it's but really it still true. makes sense. It's so strange how that is when it you is, look back. Right? Um, but I was a dancer since age eight, and so I had it in my head that I was going to grow up and be a professional dancer. And so... What kind of dance? Uh, I was... I evolved into a modern dance okay. modern dancer and so um, I chose a school specifically that had a, a strong dance department but was good academically as well to kind of cover all bases and I graduated I immediately moved to New York City and I just thought okay well I will now launch my career as a professional dancer well it's not that easy super tough super in tough yeah. especially in this city right. so um, but I knew I wanted to live in New York and so I gave it a shot and about two years in, I just couldn't hack it anymore. I couldn't hack the life, the rejection over and over again, the the competition. And I mean, there were so many, there were obviously so many talented artists in the city and, and I was good and I was talented as well, but not good enough. I would go to auditions where there would be a hundred people. They were looking for 10 and maybe I made it down to the last 20, but I didn't get the job. So it was a tough decision to give it up. I mean, I directed my whole life toward that direction. And um, that was really my first reinvention moment because I, I gave it up and I literally, truly had no idea what I was going to do next. So this was a, like we talk about holy shit moments. And the that, was, that was my first. This was the one. So what did when you were faced with that and mm-hmm. you had come to the personal realization, this wasn't either wasn't going to happen or you just couldn't put yourself through it anymore, whichever. Yes. What 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 did you do? What it was the pro- did you talk to your mom? Did you what did you do? I did. I talked to my mom. I talked to my friends, and it, it's it was kind of this very frustrating point of my life because I literally twofold. I literally had no idea what else I was interested in. As almost pathetic as that sounds, I no. literally thought. Well, I'm not interested in anything else, so I have no idea what I'm going to do next. That's yeah. That was the thought. Combined with 
really low self-esteem, which had kind of been ingrained way before mm-hmm. I had graduated college, but it didn't help that I didn't make it as a dancer. Um, I, th- I believe timing-wise at that moment, I was also uh, broken up with by my first real boyfriend uh. after, after college. So it kind of all came at tumbling once. down on me. At and once. And it was tough. It was a tough time. And so I literally thought, well, I've always been interested in cooking and food and restaurants. Maybe I can find something with that. So I ended up taking a job at a catering company in the West Village. The office was in a dismal basement. I'll never forget. And I they gave me the job to be the office manager. I never sat at a desk in an office in my life. Um, Everything happens for a reason. We learn from all of our experiences. And from that one, I learned that I will never sit at a desk again. (laughs) And I did last there two years. When what? So can I put like time scale on that? How old were you? Like what kind of year was this? I have to think about that. So that happened, uh, I would say I took the job in 81. Mm -hmm. And so you're um, young, you're in your early 20s. Late 20s. Late 20s. Because it was after, actually, no, you're right. I was about 24 and a half, 25. Mid 20s, okay. Yes. Uh, I took the job. As I said, I was miserable. Mm -hmm. During that time period of being at that job, I was set up on a date and I met a man who uh, thought I was the greatest thing. Tinder, everybody who's listening, who's actually met someone organically. Yes. Um, Talking to them in person. We went to a restaurant (laughs) with my friend and uh, we had a very nice time and uh, he was pretty enamored with me and we started dating and eventually I made the decision to marry this person. Uh, Part of of what went into that decision in retrospect was my low Mm self-esteem and my thinking that I wasn't going to figure out on my own what kind of career I could come up with next. And so cringeworthy moment for feminists, and I like to think of myself as a feminist, I got married as a solution. Uh, I knew I wanted to be a mom at some point. Uh, My ex-husband now, spoiler alert, um, (laughs) very ambitious, very um, driven. And I knew that he could create a nice life for us. And, you know, I certainly loved him at the time. And it just all I thought that will be the perfect solution and answer to my problems. Mm So we know that's not always the best reason. I mean, look, I'm going to go back. This is in the 80s. It is in the 80s. And I'm like a little commercial here because for people who are listening who might be younger, they might be like, what? Like that's like if you go back and if and I'm big on like old movies and like the 80s were certainly that old movies. But like you watch like Wall Street, the movie Wall Street or you watch, I mean, Working Woman or Mm -hmm. Secret of My Success. I'm like I'm trying to like the kind of the pop culture ones. You look at those scenarios and how women were treated in them, even though that some of them were the women were like heroines in it. They still were treated as second. And that was just, I mean, that was, we were still trying to overcome that in the 80s and not as such an obvious way as we've been able to as a, you know, group now. And so I don't, look, I think you're probably being a little hard on yourself that you found it as a solution. I think, I think, (laughs) I think a lot of people were like, look, this is how you do it. I mean, we're, we were children of the boomers, right? right? So this is, this is how you do it. You go to school, you find a job, maybe get married, you have kids and 
you know, when no, you're, you're unsure right. of yourself. No, no, you're so right. And um, and I am hard on myself typically. Yeah. But um, yeah. I don't know why. I like this. Like you're... <laughs> but um, anyway, that's how it played out. And the truth was it it wasn't the right partnership um, yeah. with him. And I, at the same time, had never been around divorce. My parents were together, mm -hmm. um, were never divorced. And no one in my family had been. And it wasn't an option, so I stuck with it, and I had kids, mm -hmm. thank God. And I had my two twin girls uh, and in 1990. Um, they're 29 today. Crazy. Yeah. And um, I thought that will solve everything because I always wanted to be a mom. I'll put all my focus on, on the them. Kids. We know that doesn't work either. Right. And so at the age of six for them... I made the decision that I was going to pick up and leave the marriage. And, you know, people tell me in retrospect, like, wow, you're really strong that you were able to do that. And even with that, I don't give myself credit. I think, well, I felt that I had no choice. This was something I had to do. Mm -hmm. I don't want to leave out the fact that it was my intro into the therapeutic process myself. Mm. Um that helped me get there because it helped me build the strength to do it. And it helped me realize that the marriage I was in was was just not right for me. Was your mom still, your mother still around at she this time? Was. And it was. I'm, I'm very curious now because we brought her in so much. Um, yes. How, A, how did she feel about the divorce? About And was she helpful to you with sort of this self-therapy? Or to be honest, I, I believe deep down she was a bit conflicted about the divorce. Mm -hmm. Again, she's from no, her right. generation. Of course. Was, and mm -hmm. um, she often, I'm going to get a little shrinky here, but she often projected her way of being on to me. Mm -hmm. And she happened to be, believe it or not, a, a very fearful person, despite mm -hmm. the narcissism and the outward appearance Confidence. of being a very strong woman. Mm -hmm. She was very fearful. And so I do believe there was part of her who was terrified for me, thinking, how is she going to survive right. on her own? Right. But again, those kinds of thoughts really played into my self-esteem growing yes. up. And when you're a child, you don't know what's going on. Right. And there's no other, when you don't have another set of experiences or exactly. emotions to pull from, it's the only one you have, right? Exactly. So on the one hand, I think she was very nervous and scared for me. On the other hand, she knew the marriage wasn't right for me. And you know, of course, ultimately wanted me to be happy. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah. And so you, so kind of going back to yes. this self therapy, what did you do? So I uh, got to the point where I realized I had to leave. I, I knew it was the right decision. Uh, so I literally had to pick up with my six year old girls and move out of the apartment. Um, that was the only choice I was given. And I uh, had to find another apartment quickly. And I did. And we moved out. And I was so nervous about the girls and how they would react. But they were pretty great about it. And uh, I remember putting the key in the door of the new apartment. And they were six. So I couldn't really yeah. explain to them exactly what was, what was going on other than we're moving into a new apartment. And I was so nervous. And I opened the door, and this apartment had a very long hallway that led to their bedroom. And I said, your your bedroom's at the end of the hall. And they ran down the hallway mm -hmm. and were 
jumping up and down because of how much they love their new bedroom. And I just looked up at the oh sky and I said, thank you. Yeah. Thank oh you. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. And that was, that was the start of my life uh, on my own as a single mom. Isn't that funny how just something simple like that can totally... Yes. I'm sure that that did a lot for you, no? Oh, my Changing God. your your, so, com- your confidence. I mean, versus yes. they come in and started, you know, laying on the floor crying. Yes, right? so much. And and life changed, changed drastically from that point because, you know, I had a full-time help with the girls when I was married. Now I don't, can't mm-hmm. afford it. Um... I was there for them every day. Once in a while, I would get a babysitter to get a break at night, but I was hands-on. Were you working still? Uh, At that time, I was not working, Mm -hmm. and that was my next moment. That was my next moment of reinvention because I was a stay-at-home mom, Mm -hmm. and I'll never forget. um, Unfortunately, during the divorce process and the separation process, we had to go to court one day. Excuse me, and. We couldn't make a decision about something, and we sat in the judge's chambers, and it was a woman, mm-hmm. and part of the um, the disagreement was over alimony mm-hmm. and child support. And I had a woman judge, and I thought, okay, this is going to work for right. me because she'll understand that I was a stay-at-home mom, and the girls were only six, and I think they still need me right. at home. And so I kind of pled my um, cause, and she looked at me, and she said, honey... You're going to have to get a job. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And I believe I was trembling. Um, again, didn't know what I'm going to do now and walked out of there and thought, okay, I- I'm just going to have to figure this out. Yeah. And it just so happens that that was when I discovered the spin class for the first time. So you walked out there. Okay. So literally, and is this still like, 96, like mid 90s type of thing. This is late 90s. Late 90s. Okay. Yes. Late 90s. So you la- so where did you find this? So what happened spin? was and I just want to include uh, no, because it's an important part of the story that previous to that and when I was married and before I was married, I was also teaching group fitness part-time. Oh. And I had found an aerobic studio in my neighborhood on the Upper West Side. It was this small hole in the wall boutique, actually. And the woman who owned it asked me, I went there to take a class and she asked me if I wanted to teach there because she saw my dance background and it was of kind course. of a dance. Was it like step class? I remember those old steps. I did classes. step after oh, yeah. that. Yeah, so I did it all. <laughs> so I just wanted to include that that little did I know, again, looking back in yeah. retrospect, that that was kind of my master's degree in did group you, fitness. Did you end up teaching? I did. You did. Okay. And you I did. taught there for eight years. Eight years. And I combined. Just part-time, right? Yes, it's part-time. Like a couple hours yes. A and I did private training and yeah. I did some step classes. So, you know, again, I would do it part-time because the girls were then born and I was yeah. taking care of them as well. Right. So <clears throat> back to, I was a member of the Reebok Club on the Upper West Side. It's actually now an Equinox. Mm. It was a beautiful full service gym and I was able to keep my membership after I had left the marriage. And I decided during this period, which was very difficult, needless to say, of course. we need to take care of ourselves, right? We need to stay strong. We need to not let ourselves go. And so I thought I'm going to keep going to the gym and, uh, you know, take care of my body and my head. And so I had seen the spin classes going on in this all glass room at the Reebok Club. And they were very intimidating to me. You know, I would hear this loud kind of clubby music and the room would be packed and the sound of the wheels and it looked like a club and I was nervous. But one day I said, 
I'm just going to bite the bullet. I'm going to go in there because I was very intrigued. I didn't go with a friend. I went in by myself. And Julie, that was it. By the end of the 45 minutes, I saw what happened to me. I went through this um, routine. uh, And I say routine because in a way, it kind of was like a dance routine because you were doing choreographed movement to the beat of the music that the instructor chose, the playlist. And something about it. At the end of the 45 minutes, I felt physically exhilarated. I felt mentally exhilarated because there was something about being on a stationary bike where obviously you're not going to fall off. You can close your eyes. You can tap into the music. You can tap into whatever mood you are in, um, the thoughts that are going on in your head, and make it all work for you. It became this experience as opposed to an exercise class. Mm -hmm. And so I got it after the first class. And then I started going regularly and it became a very important part of my life. Now, were you, did you have another job at this point or was this? I did not. No, this, okay. So you were doing this and still part-time, were you still part-time I was able, no. Oh. I was, I had a certain period of time where I was able to stay afloat, if you will, with the payments I was getting. And, um, you know, fortunately have this time to explore a little bit. Um, Again, a looking back moment. I remember my, you know how mothers always say, maybe you should take a course. And I always hated when she said that. But I thought, she's probably right. And let me just explore and figure this out. Oddly, I took a course in memoir writing. I knew that writing was something I always appreciated and enjoyed. And I have no idea why I took a memoir course, but I did. And never in a million years thought I would ever write a memoir, let alone publish a book. But I did. Yeah. So it's just interesting how... It's interesting to look at what happened during that period. Well, I mean, yes, I'm sure it served you well in terms of writing your book, but also I just... I've had the privilege now, because you were a guest at Joyride, of taking one of your classes, which ah. I think makes me special. But, um, <laughs> Thank you. But, you know, just how you, when you speak, it's a little like excerpts from a memoir, at least my experience was, of listening to you. Because That's exactly you, right. The, you know, you didn't just give, you know, general philosophical, you know, Buddha-like comments. You, you kind of connected it to yourself and, you know, helping people find similar yes. connections. So I, I think in some ways it helps... It probably helps. So how did you, so you memoir writing, mm-hmm. now you love spinning, you're cycling. Mm-hmm. Okay. How does, how does Hill Cycle? So I'll tell you how it happened. Uh, I guess two years in, uh, my kind of guru spin instructor, because we all kind of find our guru mm-hmm. instructor, mm-hmm. whatever the genre is, uh, one day announced he was leaving town, he was moving to Florida. It was a dev. I'm embarrassed to say a devastating moment for me. I th- I literally thought my world fell apart. Well, he was probably kind of like your therapist in some ways, Completely. right? Completely. Yeah. He was part of my experience sure. with spin, and I had no idea how I was going to handle this. And uh, I thought I wasn't really wild about the other instructors who were at the club at that time. I loved it so much. I thought, you know what? I'm just going to have to start teaching myself. And so I started to go into the spin room by myself. I made my own own playlists and realized I can do this. And so I asked if I could audition. They said, sure. I auditioned one day. They hired me in three minutes. Oh. They said, you're done. You're, you're good. You're hired. Um, 
again, because of my dance experience, I knew music, I knew how to count music, I knew how to move to music, how to choreograph. So it came pretty easily to me. What didn't come easily was um, being up there in front of a group. Mm. I mean, on the one hand, I... I grew up as a performer, and I had my experience performing as a dancer, which I always loved. But it was a whole different thing getting up there and having to speak. Oh, yeah. And so that took a while. It took a while for me to get comfortable with it, and it took a while for me to kind of hone what would become my way of teaching a spin class. Mm -hmm. And as you just touched upon, a big part of that became this ability that I kind of cultivated to speak about my own issues and things I would go through during the course of my week to an entire group of strangers. Mm -hmm. And when I did it and when I do it, it's never subjective It's because I don't want to make the class about me. I put all of the kind of little anecdotes in objective terms and in, in a way that everybody could hopefully relate to it. And what I quickly found was that all of the issues we go through, pretty much everyone else is going Mm -hmm. through them too. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, if I was able to make myself vulnerable and courageous enough to make myself vulnerable in front of all of these people, that's when it would resonate with the people in the class. And so that's how it started. And I found that with every class, people would come up to me after the class and say, oh my God, I can't believe you talked about such and such because... I felt like you were talking to me. I went through that this week. And so the more um, of that kind of feedback that I received, the more it encouraged me to keep doing it. Yeah. How did you... So from there... You have you co-founded, so you met some other people. Yes. Were they in class with you? That you, yeah. So um, one of my Soul Cycle co-founders had been taking my class out in the Hamptons on the east end of Long Island, and. She found me one summer, actually it was the summer of 2005, followed me in the fall back to the Reebok Club and approached me one day and said, hey, love your class. I've become a a big fan of it. I would like to open a spin studio in New York. And I know nothing about spin or teaching spin. I just know that I love it. And I would love you to be the face of the business. I want it to be your method. What do you think? Within 30 seconds, Julie, I said, I mean, you knew. it had already been my dream, but I never had the capital to do it. Right. And that was what she was bringing to the and game. Business, did she have a business sense? Uh, she, what, her experience was in selling real estate. So okay. she had a little, bit, a little right. experience with that. Financial Obviously not stuff, on the creative no, 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 fitness right, right. end. So it was a good marriage, though, a little bit yes. more of the... Yes. Okay. And look, she was providing the capital. Yeah, right, and, and I couldn't do that myself. Right. I had never run a business, so it would have been hard for me to get the funding myself, um, or at least I thought so at that time. So uh, we ended up with three co-founders because the uh, third co-founder was one of my closest friends and also a big um, fan of my class. She had just moved to New York from L.A. She was a talent agent in L.A. And she and I used to have dreams of opening our own place, and she didn't have the capital either. I'm a very loyal person, especially when it comes to friends and family, and I felt bad about going off with someone else and kind of leaving her out of it. And so I talked about her to Elizabeth, who was the first person who approached me and asked if the three of us could meet. Elizabeth said, sure. Um, And we did. And 
Elizabeth and Julie hit it off. And so that was the start of SoulCycle. So uh, how quickly did it start? So you met, so 2005 is the conversation yes. started. Did When did you f- open the first one? In the spring of 2006. Wow. So that was pretty quick. It was very quick. Uh, literally went out, bought our front desk at Ikea, set it up ourselves, <laughs> uh, found the space, which was Again, a hole in the wall, ironically, directly across the, the street from where I taught aerobics in the oh 80s. My gosh. How crazy is that? And again, it was a, it was actually a former dance studio in the back of a building on the first floor. We were able to fit in, I believe it was 32 bikes. Uh, we barely had an office. It was really the cubbies where we stored the shoes. And we fit a desk back in the back area as well. And... That was Soul Cycle. Um, we found out, you know, there are always mishaps when you start a business. We found out after we signed the lease that we would not be able to have any signage outside. Can you imagine? What? And we're in the back of a building. Oh we didn't know what we were going to do. Elizabeth came up with the idea of uh, taking a rickshaw and with a bike and painting it the Soul Cycle yellow, and we just parked it outside the door with a big sign on it that oh said Soul Cycle. And that was our solution. And little did we know that uh, as time went on, again, no signage outside, it became kind of the club that you had to know right, about. Right, kind of cultish. To kind of, get into yeah, it. Yeah, right. And I really do think it was, it added to the vibe that eventually grew out of Soul Cycle, which was a very exclusive kind of place where you had to kind of, you know, be trendy and be in the know to know about it. I mean, before we knew it, there were escalades lined up down the block with Soul Cycle riders. That's crazy. Yeah. So all right, so how many years? So kind of fast forward me <clears throat> towards like how many studios, like how quickly did it did right. it get there? So our second studio happened in the summer of 2007 because we decided we needed to open in the Hamptons. Okay. I mean, what better way to get the word out? You know, you have people coming coming there from all over the world. Well, in the summer, people summer there. Totally. Right? And so that was our idea for Studio Two. We found, we lucked out and found an incredible space in this barn in Bridgehampton. So it felt very countryish yeah. and Hamptons ish. And so we opened there. And by the end of that summer, the business exploded, literally to the point where we got back into the into the Upper West Side studio in the fall and could not fit everyone through our doors. Wow. That's how incredible it was and we had already started a third studio that was in the works on the Upper East Side. Uh Um, Things did not turn out to be very easy for me in that uh, I made some mistakes in terms of lack of my legal protection Mm -hmm. and there were pitfalls along the way because uh, the partnership was ultimately not working out Mm -hmm. and so I left SoulCycle three years in. Mm-hmm. Um, I speak about it very easily. It, I rack it up as one of the few traumatic experiences in my life. A big Hoshimo. Yes. yes. I had <laughs> to leave what was my baby. Yeah. Um, I had to leave my entire clientele of people that I had actually built at the Reebok Club they all came over, Julie. Because they, of you. Yes. Oh, I'm sure. And they, as I said, they left this beautiful facility and were willing to come to a hole in the wall to take 
the spin class that eventually was honed in this boutique environment. And so it was traumatic. And I never in a million years predicted things would work out that way, but they did. And so I left and fortunately um, met up with my future co-founders of Flywheel at a SoulCycle class. um, (laughs) And that was the summer of 2009. And they found me and asked me if I would meet with them. And I did. And my partner, Jay, was the person who came up with this concept of adding technology, adding metrics to the bike so you could finally be able to um, measure what you were doing mm-hmm. in the spin room. And I thought it was genius. No one had done it. And what really excited me about it was here I was starting round two of the same type of business, but it was such an amazing way to differentiate ourselves from SoulCycle. So we launched Flywheel in February of 2010. And there I was competing with right. my first business. Right. Super. That must have been, I mean, that must have been awkward. And, and I know you said, you know, things didn't work out well with part the partnership. And look, sometimes three's a crowd, as they say, right? Yes, and for and sure. there's weird dynamics. But I, I I wanted to go back to something um, that I think is profound because I think it, I think for anybody in business, I think probably especially for women in business, I'm the same way. You know, when it's people that I trust and love personally, I tend to be, you know, all in. And the sort of the legal thing almost feels like an insult, you know, to exactly what happened. And so, and then you find out that maybe they weren't as loyal or as committed or connected as you. And yes you end up with a major short end of the stick. And and I know, you know, financially, you didn't, you didn't win in the thing that was yours. And, you know, it's, I'm sure it left a very bitter taste in your mouth that would have mine. I I would love to, you know, people can look up legal precedent. I don't care about that. I'm much more interested in you personally, because I think being able to pull yourself back up and start this flywheel, but I'm sure you still had a lot of this emotion and energy from what happened carry forward how how did you how did you deal with that in the midst of everything and you're still raising two girls I mean like I'm sure it was just absolutely wildly tumultuous for you it was and it was as you astutely pointed out it was tumultuous for a while and um I kind of had one day an aha moment and that was uh probably a year into flywheel and my co-founder Jay uh said to me you know maybe you should just focus on the fact that you have now not started just one successful business but now you've started two successful successful businesses. You have co-founded two successful spin businesses. And as simple as that sounds, there was just something, I guess, about the timing and the way he said it, that that really helped me enormously. Um, it was unfortunate that my former co-founders, after all was said and done, um, for whatever reason, chose to um, erase me from the story. And that was one of the hardest parts, because I couldn't fathom how anyone could really do that. Obviously, they must have had their reasons, but that made the um, struggle that much harder. And so... Because it became personal. It did. It it became personal. And and I was constantly, um, you know, calling people like Time Magazine, a reputable uh, periodical, obviously. And I remember our PR person at Flywheel had to tell them, actually, do you understand that you have erroneous information in the article? And 
they were furious and they changed it and they yeah. retracted and they they put in something about me. But I didn't want to keep doing that. Yeah. But eventually I was able to start, you know, talking about myself as I am a co-founder of two yeah. spin businesses. And and as time went on, that kind of helped in that entire area and that subject matter. Well, you earned it. I mean, there's why why should you allow I mean, that's that's standing up for you. I mean, talk about self-esteem exactly. and confidence is just to you're not bashing anything, but you're you're owning the I'm thing owning that it. you deserve. You know, that that's yours. hundred percent. So, all right, so flywheel. When yes. did that so so walk me to the end of flywheel. So flywheel uh, started 2010. Again, a moment where sometimes it's helpful to be second in the marketplace. People, you know, more people knew about spin at that mm-hmm. point. However, we opened downtown. SoulCycle was more uptown at that point in time. And so at the same time, we got to introduce spinning to a whole new group because yeah. there was nothing going on in Flatiron back then. It's interesting that Flat, Flatiron is literally the fitness hub. Oh my God, right. So, Today, yeah. everything is there. Yeah. Um, but Business grew quickly for us. We sold out our first class probably a month in. And our philosophy was we need to run with this. We need to open as many studios as we can as quickly as we can. So that was the way we approached it. Um, People always laugh at the fact that one of our business strategies was to open a flywheel wherever there was a Whole Foods. So we would go (laughs) into, that was it. And so we would go into other cities. Um, We focused mostly on urban areas in the beginning and we would open next to a Whole Foods and that was our formula and it worked. And so um, I'm just going to jump ahead, but eventually we opened, I guess we had 22 studios across the country by 2013. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was at that point, so we're three years in, that we started uh, fielding interest uh, from people who were interested in buying the company. And this was just such an ego boost for all of us. I mean, it was kind of like a pinch ourselves moment and felt amazing. And, you know, and that was a big moment where we had to, the three of us looked at each other and thought, are we ready to sell? Is this something we really want to do? And then the offer started coming in more frequently and we started entertaining them. And the truth is, excuse my language, you know, the three of us had worked our asses off for all of those years. You know, we were ready to see some money. That would be nice. And so we um, got very close to a deal with one particular company. And at that point, we had had a strategic investor who had come in in 2012, who came in and really helped us with expansion. Mm -hmm. He kind of stepped in at the last minute and said, hold on, if anyone's going to buy this company, I will. And that was it. We we were able to make a deal with him and sell Flywheel. And that um, monetary event, financial yeah. event, happened in March of 2014. And so another huge moment because the company sold. Uh, you can declare victory. Exactly. Yeah. And it felt really good. And, um, you know, did I make a killing? And am I never working another day in my life? The answer is no. I probably will always want to work, but I'll have to as well. And I will. Um, But I was able to really create a beautiful life for myself. And 
it it for felt it felt amazing mm-hmm. and for my daughters and um i think the biggest gift that i gave for my gave to myself was i bought a house in sag harbor oh. a little house uh, in the village it's 200 years old and i love it and it brings me an enormous amount of pleasure I love as that. does as does it to my, for my girls as well so sure. so that happened and i know this is very common but everything changed yep you know, and I know this happens with takeovers. Um, I stayed with the company. My two co-founders left very quickly. Oh. Um, and a lot of people left really quickly. And so the entire kind of team that helped create Flywheel was gone. And I felt kind of like I was operating without a net. You know, all of mm-hmm. my kind of support system had left. And so it was kind of a growing experience for me, growing pains in terms of how to handle this new iteration of the company. Um, so it was difficult. It had been a difficult time. And I felt my way through it and kind of had to advocate for myself in terms of where I really wanted to see myself, what I wanted my role to be. Um, so I did. And stuck with it as long as I could, and then made the very difficult decision to leave this company in uh, December of last year. So uh, so it's been almost a year that I've been away. So what do you, so I know you, when did you write the book? I wrote the book, the book was released in... Right, 18. In 18. I probably wrote it a year and a half before that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So is there another book in the works, maybe? Uh, I've been encouraged to write another book, and I'm thinking about it. Okay. Not sure yet. Not formulated yet. And so given that you opened up with second, third, fourth careers that we talked about in your mm-hmm. bio, do you, are, what are you exploring? What are you thinking about? What? Well, one of the things the book afforded me was, as you said in the beginning of the podcast, that I am doing speaking engagements right. across the country, and I am loving them. I didn't know how I would... F- do and how I would feel about them, but they're going really well. And what I realized was kind of like the book with the speaking engagements, I'm able to kind of do what I did on a bike, but just obviously reach a larger audience and not be on a bike. And I do the same thing. I just inspire people by telling them my life story, which is what the book is. And I've been getting such incredible feedback from it. And I've been speaking at, you know, anywhere from large banks and Mm -hmm. finance institutions to graduate schools. Um, I'm speaking at Stanford Business School next week. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I can't wait. And then I spoke at Wharton a couple of weeks ago and all the grad students come to me and they want to share their business ideas. And I love it. I'm just, I'm having a great time. So I'd like to continue doing that. That's Yes. Great. I um, just started uh, teaching again. So I'm doing a pop-up at the JCC on the Upper West Side, okay. which interestingly is a place I always seem to come back to because it's like home for me. And um, we actually had a flywheel at the JCC that we had built out and flywheel had pulled out of there in the new iteration. They kept it actually the same way we still have stadium seating and so I thought I'll just go back there and it'll feel like home yeah. and, and, it and it does, does. I just started back there and all my people are coming back and it, it feels Aww. amazing so um, between teaching and the speaking engagement I'm, I'm really figuring it out Julie yeah. whether I want to start a new business yeah. start round three which is a little intimidating daunting, right I'm daunting sure. yep. to do it again but it's not out of the realm of possibilities at all. You know, do I want to focus on working on kind of the Ruth brand and and seeing, you know, how many different, you know, in how many different 
ways I can take it, whether it's product partnership, retail, um, you know, I don't know. Yeah. So I'm, I think yeah. the most important thing I've realized is that I need to take my time and be mindful about this next decision. I do a lot of networking and just trying to speak to as many people in and out of the industry as possible and get people's feedback, kind of really study the industry because it's changed so much. And, you know, certainly with Peloton and right. bringing exercise and fitness into the home, there's a lot to look All at the and subway learn. today, by the way, is that mirror? The mirror, the mirror is huge. Yeah. Right. And I've met with Bryn, who founded The Mirror. It's a great product. And yeah, so it's important to see what's taking, what's not taking, and right. and in which direction to go. Well, I think you'd be a massive asset to any of Thank those you. people, you know, for certainly board positions of things yes, like that. Yes, that but too as well. I love, I so I have done a lot of speaking myself, and I, I think you would be hugely great. I've also had to bring in speakers for big companies, and I think you would be Brilliant. What a great Thank inspirational you. story. Um, for me, your story embodies sort of what the conversational is about, which is you know, successful people's careers and these moments that come along that kind of can knock you off course and what can happen. And, you know, in some ways, you know, as sad as it was for you to be knocked off course, there's you can certainly declare victory with what you've done. And I'm, I think you'll be, I mean, look, you've already won the game, but I think... You have so much to give to people who are thinking about it or who are feeling down. And, and even daily in those classes, those pop-up classes, mm-hmm. I, I know I, I was inspired by you. So Thank you. Thank you so much for coming today. Of course. I Thank appreciate you for it. having me. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>